So today's movie that we're going to be talking about is full of crusty jugglers, the unwashed masses, and underage drinking. And I'm talking, of course, about mm-hmm. the 2007 new British classic, Hot Fuzz. Oh, I'm shocked. I thought you were describing EastEnders for a second. I mean, I've seen some EastEnders. Y'all, y'all's, uh, y'all's idea of uh, um, soap operas is wild over there. Like, absolutely wild. Um, yeah. Mm. And yeah, they've, and they've only got wilder in uh, recent decades. But to be honest, they're probably in good company then with what goes on in Hot Fuzz. Well, the the problem is, is when you start out at like a 10, you can only get higher. So EastEnders, if they want to stay true to that, they have to kind of go over the top. Uh, although I don't know how much that was intended. With Hot Fuzz, um, all the overtopness was intended, actually. And I mm-hmm. think that's what makes it um, a really great piece of cinema. There, There's a lot of really great stuff in the second entry into the trilogy. And uh, Magnus, I feel like you're as excited about this as I was about Shaun of the Dead. It, <clears throat> oh, I was excited about Shaun of the Dead. But there is a reason, dare I say, that Hot Fuzz is probably the most well-known and well-regarded of the three Cornettos trilogy. Um now, Shaun of the Dead comes in really strongly after it, but, I mean, Hot Fuzz, it wasn't just popular here. I understand it was quite popular in the States as well. Uh, yeah, when they did their uh, 2006 <clears throat> reveal at Comic-Con in San Diego, um, the reception to it was really great for a lot of reasons. Mm. Um, I love Hot Fuzz for many a reason uh, here in America. Why do the people of Britain love Hot Fuzz? Why do you specifically love Hot Fuzz? <laughs> well, as you might know, I'm quite a fan of sheer over-the-top um, antics. But I myself also... am shocked. I am shocked. <laughs> mm. It's an interesting blend. It's theatrical, it's over the top, but there's also a, a vein of quintessential Britishness that it never fades away and it all comes together in this wonderful, messy, beautiful thing. Almost like a um, dessert that you've cobbled together out of all your favorite bits. Uh, so here's something interesting I learned while I researched about the film. I kind of want to use this as a jumping off point. Uh, okay. This film is not as I thought. Uh, apparently, when they talk about this film, Edgar Wright, Simon Pegg, and Nick Frost don't talk about it as a parody or a spoof. They don't think it's pointed enough to be that, but it obviously mm. has an homage. Mm. Obviously, they watched about 138 um buddy cop action films in order to mm. like create this script in the 18 months they brought it together but they don't call it a parody they don't uh i don't remember what the interview was exactly but it's the idea is that it's not pointed enough about things in the genre it uses the tropes of the genre but mm. it's not pointed about them in their eyes which i found kind of interesting because sean the dead's not really a zombie parody either it's a zombie love story which was new but Mm. specifically when i think about this as a buddy cop comedy it really does seem like a parody but that was not their intention in creating it which i found really interesting in the research i did Mm. so yeah that that is quite interesting i mean if you asked me how to describe it i would describe it in several ways as you say um a parody of buddy cop movies of um action thrillers and such and something i want to touch on a bit later on in more detail a parody of neo-western tropes in a british setting but you're making it sound as if it's more of a a sincere um buddy cop drama I think sincere comedy is a thing that we don't grapple with enough, but I think Hot Fuzz, especially if the people that created it are saying it's not a parody and it's not a spoof, is something to really think about. Um, I think the big thing is the idea that they felt there wasn't a um, action-adventure cop drama in British tradition. Uh, so in British tradition, you have a lot of spy thrillers. You've got the Avengers. You've got Prisoner. 
Uh, but the way they felt mm. about it was they didn't feel like like every other country seemed to have a version of like the cop thriller and show Hot Fuzz is both a comedy, but more to the point, it's a buddy cop thing mixed with quintessential Britishness in a lot of ways. Um, mm. And I think it really works, especially if there really isn't any other <laughs> buddy cop comedy. Um, and apparently they really just wanted mm. to go back to one of their um, childhood hometowns and like shoot up the place. Like that was one <laughs> thing on the Wikipedia page is um, either Simon Pegg or Nick Frost was like, yeah, I just really wanted to go home and blow stuff up. And that's what they ended up doing, I guess. <laughs> and decidingly quite well indeed. Yeah. No, you're right, actually. So thinking about it, with British um, cop dramas over here, they're usually like Midsummer Murders, which are revolving around drama and more of a murder that's happened. Um, or you have something like the Bill, which is again, it's a British um, soap opera about policemen and such, but it's more about crime and the issues around it and everything. Um, and in terms of more, I guess you'd have like Mish. Uh, what was it? Uh, the guy that played J John Sim, who played. Um, is it Life on Master. Mars? Yeah, Life on Mars is what I was thinking of because that's like say, a prestige. Yeah. That's it's... like a prestige procedural, but it's still a procedural. It's not really a buddy cop. Because this is all stylized after, like, Die Hard and Lethal Weapon and Point Break and Executive Decision. Like, they joke about that yes. in choosing the title is that that's part of the joke, is that all these movies have the, you put a noun, an adjective, and a hat, you pick it up, and that's your title sort yeah. of thing. So Hot Fuzz was, it, it, it really is the first time they're using classic british technique to showcase the idea of a buddy cop drama in britain and i think it's very rich for that um mm. not just because of the cast and the location but i think the technique of the movie itself um makes it a really strong entry not just into the trilogy but yeah. into the amount of lists that hot buzz is on of top 10 films mm. is uh is quite is quite impressive for a movie from 2007 um it's a, it's on a lot of top ten lists, especially for dudes, quote unquote. Um, yes. <laughs> although I really do think this is such. Uh, what's interesting is that Walmart has it in, a, in the romantic film section. Uh, it's called an action adventure, but they have it on Walmart.com as a romantic film, which I also agree with. Hmm. Now I see. I see the point there, and we sort of touched upon this with. Going going back to Shaun of the Dead, we touched upon this last time that Shaun of the Dead is a bit of a multifaceted film because it touches on several different genres and all all of them quite worthy to call it a film in that genre. And you could say, yeah, very much so that Hot Fuzz it is multi-layered like that as well. Um, no, I, I definitely agree. It, it sounds odd at first, but actually when you think about it, it makes sense. I read somewhere that, um, what did I read? I, so I, I read stuff in preparation this movie I had read stuff about before, but there was a specific uh, book or a reference to it somewhere where it said uh, Nick and Danny's relationship is actually a romance. It's not just friendship, but there's the hallmarks of traditional heterosexual romance that they yeah. go through. There's like an actual like, dating culture love language between them um and because there's no liz in this movie you really can't do the sean and ed thing where it's super platonic and just really close there mm. are hallmarks of actual romance and dating and you actually get foreshadowing with the romeo and juliet play um and mm. their kind of relationship because there's something very romeo and juliet about buddy cop comedies already anyways um <laughs> yes. and so like i feel like there's a great amount of foreshadowing in the romeo and juliet uh play that really mm. is about their kind of homo romantic relationship they have so and mm. um, the fact is the way that the film is structured towards the end by leaving it um you know the adventure continues um yeah. on and such there is an open door for shall i say you know 
people to imagine feelings blossoming and such if they choose to take the relationship in that direction. Yeah. And there's something interesting here, too, that they do in characterization in that Nicholas Angel is mm. a super cop. He's a very robocop. And except for that Japanese piece lily that is kind of a recurring theme through him, he doesn't seem to have, you know, mm. maternalistic feelings. He's very much by the book, by the law. But it is kind mm. of it is a caricature of that um, cop trope. And so in that, in breaking that caricature throughout the film, um, yeah. both ways, good and bad, uh, Simon Pegg does this really great job of taking this macho thing and exploring not necessarily the why, not diving too deep into the backstory, but exploring how kind of this one-dimensional macho by the book character actually could exist but can't exist for too long. Because once you start meeting people that break through it, it starts to change you mm. a little bit. And the the great moment um, where Nick and Danny are getting drunk and the uh, real estate guy is going to be is being murdered kind of in a montage style sequence. There's something really yeah. great about how we see nicholas angel finally kind of break and it's how he's modeled his character in his life after all these mythical male figures in buddy cop comedies i don't think it's it's yeah. not um it's definitely a choice to be like bad boys too and um <laughs> point break as the mm. movies that they watched like how they consume has shaped nicholas's personality and i think it's there's something really deep and meaningful about having a macho character on purpose instead of creating a macho character. And I mm. think Nicholas Angel is one of those gender presentation drag king characters that just happens to be, be portrayed by a man at that point, really. Uh, Nicholas <laughs> Angel is really a drag king character. Like if a drag queen did uh, Nicholas Angel... Like you couldn't do it mm. femme. Like that's not and there there's no. not really female love interest in this movie. This is a very masculine film in a lot of ways. Mm. Which is really interesting. Like there's there's not even like a fake wife that one of the two of them has. It's not it's not subtle at all. Um all the females in this film are either kind of that uh crone type character, kind of the grandmother character, or they're the the bimbo that gets killed off in the middle of the film because she mm. was a sloppy kisser, essentially. Um so there's also like this repudiation of traditional gender roles by having both of the romantic leads be male and be both kind of the masculine and feminine side of the coin. Cause that's something yes. really great about this movie is the um, way that Nick Frost isn't necessary. He is incompetent, but he's not. There's just something very kind of sweet about him, and it, it's it's easy to imagine that if his father had not been a police officer, perhaps he would have just gone into business doing something else um, mm. in any larger city with any real crime problem. <laughs> <laughs> and, well, it's a very good choice to have him as that sweet character because it not only juxtaposes nicely against Nicholas's character but you kind of need, if you wanted to see Nicholas's character in a more vulnerable dare I say human light then having someone that was also quite macho and such that's not going to be the right way to help open him up yeah. um, because um Oh, I forgot his name. Sorry, I I mind, but not Nicholas. The other one. Oh, what's his name? Uh, my, I, my mind's gone blank. So Nick Frost's character, uh, I think it's what, what is his name? His name is um. He named himself, by the way, for for all the people that really love this movie. Nick Frost only agreed to play the role if he could play PC Danny Butterman. He named Danny Butterman the name he got. So that was all Nick Frost, by the way. <laughs> That was the comment I was going to make. The the fact, I think the surname is very on point because, well, to butter someone up is a tone to, um, like, you know, 
get up close to them in a good way you're um finding a way to um sort of ease in as it were but the way that danny's doing it it's not purposeful it's just his sweet nature is like butter and yes. he's finding a way in the cracks for nick of nicholas's like tough by the books persona and helping him to come out of his shell it's also the idea of butterfingers like when you hear butterman mm. you think of the idea and he and he's not like I said he was a convent earlier. I don't know that he's necessarily incompetent. I just don't think he was like when you're raised on pop culture and you're raised essentially on buddy cop films because they don't want you to be a successful cop. I want to talk about weaponized incompetence in this film because I think it works really well. Mm. Um when you're just raised on the pop culture of these buddy cop films and you idolize that, and of course she idolizes Nicholas. Uh, there, there's mm. a certain way that they show police work that doesn't one work in a small town, two is very American, because even like mm. even buddy cop comedies in other countries, I have a hard time thinking that they didn't ape the American formula at least a little bit. Mm. Um, I haven't watched a lot of buddy cop because it's not really a genre I like, but uh, I, I have a hard time imagining that of the 138 films that they watched to make this, 95% of those are probably American. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's something to be said about um, a separate vein of discussion, probably not now, but in a future video, about how American pop culture, because of its sheer proliferation out in the wider world, about how it's um, influenced various tropes and themes for not just cinema, but yeah. TV shows, books, etc., and how those American-style themings have kind of translated into other culture. But and it's not always good. It's it's very no. often not. It's very often not what we. Uh, it's it very often does not help as much as it does anything else. Um, yes, but. Back to the point of hand with uh yeah what you were saying. Uh Hot Fuzz is an incredible film, not just to study how to do something that I mm. guess is not a parody, but there's also something really interesting about the setting. This is almost an anti-Vicar mm. of Dibley. We talk about Vicar <laughs> of Dibley and we talk about kind of this countryside and we talk about how you know, the vicar comes in and she's very different and she's yes. not what they expect and she changes their hearts. This is the anti that where in this city mm. kind of changes Nicholas, but also morphs around him to become a more authentic part of itself. There's a really interesting yes. essay somebody wrote about a hot fuzz as a queer culture and about the idea of erasure. Um, I don't know. I, I can't disagree with that because that's this person's viewpoint on the film. But that's mm. an interesting kind of take on the film I hadn't considered. The idea that this movie is about the danger of conformity, because it is. But for it me, is, this yes. movie is also about the idea of weaponized incompetence in order to achieve a goal. And of course, in 2007, mm. we weren't talking about weaponized incompetence. Um, that was something that really just started to come up in the past couple of years in the idea of relationship on like Reddit. And of course I see mm. on Instagram because Instagram doesn't want us to do original authentic things there anymore. Um, which is a whole other thing entirely, but there's this really mm -hmm. great thing in that the first half of the movie, you spend the entire time feeling really bad for Nicholas Angel. Cause he gets transferred to the small town. He gets promoted and then demoted like, right away 0 0.02 seconds he's promoted then demoted essentially um <laughs> and, and it's the idea of you think it's just going to be kind of this kind of straight movie of well he lives here now he's just waiting to get out of it and even when kind of that first murder happens maybe it's a one-off um it's not that big a deal you know he gets gaslit some and it's not until you get to about the halfway point of the movie when you start to realize that not everything is as it appears and that all the problems that Nicholas Angel has had up to this point actually were calculated by this kind of NWA home council homeowners association <laughs> and this idea of perfection. 
when the movie yeah. really starts at that halfway point when you think that Danny has crossed that line into becoming kind of an evil buffoon henchman type character. Um, and because yeah. Jim Broadbent is one of my favorite eccentric low-key villain actors, um, <laughs> they they do a really good job of you don't know, like there are some hints to it, but you really don't know until they have that conversation on the roadway where he's sending uh, Nick away, essentially, from the village, where it's like, mm. no, things are things are not what they appear. They, it's a really great movie because the first half of the film seems so different from the second, but they work together so well. Um, and this sort of mm. weaponized incompetence is really, it's still very apropos to the moment to today. And so, like, if you watched it today... Yeah you could still see themes we're talking about in interpersonal relationships uh, deep within this movie. Um, mm. And I'm kind of, I'm kind of obsessed with the idea too. I think it's great because there's not really movies like this in, in other genres. Mm. The idea of no. weaponized incompetence yeah. doesn't really exist as a conversation point because normally when it's done, weaponized incompetence is done in like a sitcom and it's done to make the slobby overweight male character become really funny and buffoonish um when the the other point of that is how the female character suffers and has to become a shrew and we saw that mm -hmm. like king of queens we saw yeah. it in everybody loves raymond especially and it's this idea of doing it as this card of low level plot that i really love mm -hmm. and i kind of wonder yeah. if we look at gender politics in the edgar wright films if um if we see that kind of in Baby Driver and in Last Night in Soho, because I think we see a little bit of it in Shaun of the Dead. We don't really see it in World's End because everything is kind of subsumed by Gary's anger. Um, yes. But the idea of weaponized incompetence, the idea of using these settings in this kind of unique way, I wonder if we see that like in other spaces in Edgar Wright's films. Because mm. I kind of want to go back and watch now and see if that kind of thing exists mm. elsewhere. So. No, definitely. That would be uh, that would be an interesting um, train of thought to investigate. With that you'll have to let me know if um, when you do manage to rewatch them, how that goes. If that is something that is noticeable in that. Yeah. So, uh, first of all, I'll say I agree with you. The writing in this film, the narrative and such incredibly on point and you're right that there's nothing quite like this or Shaun the dead and such out there um hot fuzz really was one of those pleasant surprises that come around every once in a while like a, a proper true authentic work by a bunch of talented people that they want to put out and it put out and it did and it, it showed why it did really well and it is one of these great things that just happens occasionally when all the right factors are there in the air and everything yeah. and nothing messes it up. <laughs> it does. It um, also does still keep to that iconic cast of characters too. Like this is the first time yeah. we really see Martin Freeman in the movie. Bill Nye comes back. Uh, oh yes. Uh, Rafe Spell, oh, uh, Rafe Spell, and uh, I think it's Patty Constantine and Rafe Spall as the two Andes is pretty iconic. Mm. Um, Bill Knight, uh, not Bill Knight, the uh, the Olivia Coleman is the really great female police officer, Doris. Uh, yes, I, I, I thought what was his name that was in it? Uh, yeah, so Bill Bailey is in this film, who is also part of the spaced family. Uh, so when some people think about this, they think about this as kind of part of the, um, if this is a sophomore slump from the spaced people, but mm -hmm. not all the cast that was in Shaun of the Dead that was also in spaced is in this. So I really do think yeah. this is its own project. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, to oh, totally. Um, I would say that each of these films in a different way of this trilogy are a love letter to different types of British popular culture um yeah. obviously this previous one was like british zombie films and horror films this one is uh british um cop dramas and such the next one is british sci-fi with a doctor who bend dare i say <laughs> yeah. um and it it feel 
when you look at the casting list, it sometimes it's almost like a who's who of talented British actors. Um, one person I found out whilst having a look into the details of this film that I completely forgot about that was in this, um, Cat Blanchett actually appears in an uncredited role. Yeah, she plays Janine. The 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 re the recurring thing about Janine and not Janine. That's Kate Blanchett playing Janine, not playing the not Janine, uh, which I find <laughs> it made it made me chuckle and giggle uh, to it, to learn about that as well. It's just fantastic. Um, and to go on to something else that we touched upon beforehand, um, the atmosphere of the film and such. So. To just give a brief um, recap of how I saw this, I went and saw this by myself in the cinema when it came out in 2007. 2007 is correct, yeah. And I, I didn't know what to think about it. I mean, by the poster, I could tell it was going to be something about cops with guns and such. Um, but my young, naive mind didn't know any better. Sat down, was watching it. I was enjoying it, but um, I was wondering where it was going. And then the first time when all of a sudden the masked killer appeared out of nowhere with the loud, dramatic music, I actually did jump in my she- my seat slightly because the film had lulled me into such a sense, like a relaxed sense of like just watching things that it really took me by surprise. And it does um, that because like the whole su- mm. subplot with the swan being like the town villain for kind of the first <laughs> half of the film is this yes. really amusing thing. But by the time, like, the real estate developer's house is getting blown up and the lady dies in the florist shop, you're like, mm. this is obviously going somewhere. Um, yes. And it really does pay off. It's actually this really great... The, it, there's kind of something wonderfully low-key horrifying about all of those side characters that didn't really mean anything as corpses mean something immense. Um, yes. when you think about like people coming in that are jugglers, people coming in to do the robot, you know, you've got this village of the year that is so focused on maintaining this idyllic verisimilitude, which is a big theater word, um, <laughs> that they're willing to go to these lengths of literal murder to do with the people. And then also you see on Nicholas's face. Every single person that has died, died because he followed the letter of the law. Uh, Which is Mm. a really interesting thing. Like, the underage drinkers die because he wouldn't let them drink and let them be safe. And people are like, no, give them a pass, they're kids, it's fine. You know, it's Britain and whatever year it was. Um, And it's just like, there's this moment of recognition in his face before Danny fake murders him that that struggle of what do I do that is right? What do I do this moral is there? And I love it. And this is one of the things where um, at some point I want to branch off and talk about this as proper British folklore that it is. People always mm. reference the Wicker Man when they talk about this film because that's very apropos, but I don't think they go quite far enough. And it's this really intriguing take not just on buddy cop but there's this layer of kind of eldritch mythological supernatural horror to hot fuzz that i Mm -hmm. think really makes the second half of the film works where it could have fallen flat and that symbolism of timothy dalton and his face just slamming into the into the steeple of the church that is supposed to be the focal point of both the town and of this mini um Mm. I think there's something incredible about it, both the symbolism and also just as a moment of cinema. Like, you know they're going for the gore because <laughs> that's part of the Blood and Ice Cream trilogy or Three Flavors mm. Cornetto trilogy. But, like, for me, the real graphic moment of this film is that, is the impalement of the of the head on the steeple, but he's still alive. He, like, he's asking for some ice cream. Oh, so, like, for me, that symbolism so, and that gore is all, it's, it's, oh, it's so good. Oh, for me, the goriest moment was when um, the mass killer um, offed the journalist by throwing, um, oh, what was it? Was it one of the um, gargoyles onto his head? And he was I, wandering I like around that, but for I a like second. That. 
as I like that more as a reference to the omen uh, than mm. I do necessarily its own thing. That's actually a really interesting, like zombie anti antichrist trope is the idea of the uh, of the kind of holy person yeah. asking questions, the hermit type character um, being impaled by something from the. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, being impaled by something formerly holy that that is used for devious means. Yes. Um, I, I yeah, I but, like that. I like hmm. that a lot. So, to give um some, some thoughts about something that you'd mentioned before <clears throat> about the idyllic scene and but what's going on under the surface and such. So. Tying this all together, we were talking about how this film um, is uh, about weaponized incompetence and such, and about the nature of Nicholas as a very hyper-competent individual and being sent to somewhere that's demanding, in a way, that he takes his competence and puts it to a certain level to be in line with the nature of the new location, the new locale he is in the what's really it what's really interesting is it there's almost like the sense of like idyllic sort of slumbering within this town um nicholas who's always constantly awake always noticing everything um because yeah he noticed it the kids drinking and such he's always aware of his surroundings and such he's been called to almost like fall into a stupor a stupor yes that's the word i was looking for he's been called to fall into stupor so that he goes along with how things should be yeah. within this town and the will of the slumbering masses underneath that you know demand a certain demand that conformity demand that someone that's really good at what they do becomes part of the very fabric of the location he's in now and he struggles with that and in a way uh, you almost wonder whether danny being partnered with him was a way to was was slightly manipulative not from danny's side of things but from yeah. his father's sort of things to get nicholas to relax and to take things a bit more chilled so he didn't cause problems well, here's here's um, a, here's a couple of aspects of it I think are really interesting yeah. that'll move the conversation along. It's the idea of I don't think Jim Broadbent as as Danny's dad hated Danny. I think in a way he wanted to give Danny something he wanted, and Danny desperately wanted to be a partner in one of these movies. Um, hmm. so I think partially with wish fulfillment, the other part of it is is that unlike Vicar of Dibley where the incompetent townsfolk are also very twee and cute and quirky, the townsfolk in this film are not quirky. They are not twee, and the ones pulling the pup strings are not incompetent. If anything, they're kind of slaves to this idea of idealism. It's much closer to like an Andy Griffith small town where everyone is playing it really straight and then does quirky things on occasion. Whereas when mm -hmm. you look at Vicar of Dibley, the incompetence is kind of almost overshadowed um, everyone except Owen and that weird like bestiality humor subplot that he has going on uh, is is more is not so incompetent as they are just very like cute and adorable and silly in the things they like um, hmm. except for Alice who doesn't get jokes but I don't I, I haven't actually done any like long term like if anyone has done any Vicar of Dibley stuff uh, to mm. kind of like look and see if they meant that character to be a village idiot or to just be a very sweet, naive Mary Magdalene type. But it's it's, it's really interesting because Hot Fuzz doesn't couch the incompetence in these kind of twee terms. It doesn't make it seem like it's the new girl where everybody is just so quirky and they can't <laughs> have but and lol. No, the incompetence seems built in, and so there's this idea that I don't think anything that happened in this movie was without thought. I can see them at the NWA council going, we're getting this new guy in who's really straight-laced. How can we either trip him up, or how can we get him to like fall into the quicksand easiest? And the easiest way to do that is to have the sons 
person with them uh, to give that personal yeah. connection. Because if you put Doris with them, uh, maybe he doesn't fall in line as quickly. If you put one of the Andes with them, then you've got to break the Andes up. You know, it, it's one of those things where like there, there, there must have been a calculated conversation be off screen once they knew this guy mm. was coming. And also, I can't imagine there wasn't a phone call about the idea of we're sending this guy to you because he's too good and we want you to wear him down. Like, I can't imagine someone in London didn't see this idyllic town with no crime and go, oh, no, there's something going on here. Uh, but we're going to send someone there for punishment. It's like a purgatory prisoner type thing. Uh, there, there's something about Hot Fuzz that has a very prisoner-esque nature to it, where mm. there's this feeling of being trapped, this feeling of not being able to use your talent to the highest level, the feeling yeah. of being... Because in The Prisoner, he's sent to this place to retire because the 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 MI6 is not the lead guy had like given up information or had like um, decided to go over to the enemy or something in the first mm. episode. So there's this sense of this is the first, the first whole half of hot fuzz is um, just from Gilmore girls arriving in town with the song, this is hell playing in the background. And it seems more like punishment, but as the layers are peeled back, it's actually mm. a guy in the right place at the right time once he learns to start letting go of the thing that has kept him from connecting with humanity. And I think it's such mm. a good layered film in with the humor, because if it didn't have the humor, this film would have flopped. Like without the humor, especially if you don't make the citizens of the town kind of twee and quirky, you kind of lose the whole film without the humor of it, because then it just becomes too much. Oh, yeah. And then it becomes just um, a film about a very nutty mass murder cult uh, community. Uh, which normally <laughs> I would enjoy, but it doesn't work without the humor here. Uh, the reason yeah. The Wicker Man works, especially the original Wicker Man, is that there is this sense of intrigue. There is this sense of not glamour, but of nature. There's a sense of freedom and frivolity and nudity and the sense of like sexual liberation that keep the wicker man from becoming too dry. Mm. Um, which I kind of want to talk about uh, in the next portion here is to talk about the full horror element of Hot Fuzz uh, because I think it fits in really well with what British does well, which is folk horror. Um, mm. Yeah. And from my side of things, I would like to um, discuss how Hot Fuzz is pretty much a neo-Western in a British setting. British horror has this really great fascination with not quite the occult, but with the idea of the mysticism it left behind when it picked up Christianity. Um, you see it a lot in stuff about the Druids especially, but there's this really great thing of British folk horror where you take someone from the city and you send them out in the country and it screws them up. So you've got the Wicker Man... <laughs> You've got Haxon, you've got a field in a field in England, you've got Robin Redbreast, Crybanshee. Uh, a lot of the Hammer films deal with this in a way. What's interesting about the British countryside now is that really there aren't, in film at least, there aren't a lot of woods, which is normally where a folk horror film takes place is in kind of this wooded, mysterious area that you can get lost. So mm. in Hot Fuzz, the woods have to be the town. It has to be the catacombs. It has to be the cathedral. It has to be a way to disorient Nicholas. And they can't use sex like they did in The Wicker Man. The Wicker Man is the easiest one. It's the most obvious one. Um, the comparisons are apt because Nicholas Angel is a very hard-nosed sort of detective, just like the detective in The Wicker Man is, except The Wicker Man is really about religion and sexual liberation, which is not something happening in Hot Fuzz. But there's this idea in British folk horror that is so prevalent of the other. Um, I really want to get Woodlands Dark and Days the Witch, which is a history of folk horror everywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, but in British folk horror, of what I've found, it's the idea of other and the idea of persecution and the idea of how oddity fits in with community that is really grappled with and often 
Mm. Oddity wins by being brutal and grotesque in its own way. Um, but also like in Wicker Man, because because uh, in Wicker Man, at the end of Wicker Man, it's not just that um, he's been led to his death like Jesus. It's that mm. um, he tries to like give common sense to people that don't have common sense. And in a way, in the second half of the film, we pull away from that Wicker Man thing, and it then really does take its place as a buddy cop comedy, take its place closer, much closer to the Western genre as he comes back to town to do his shootout, and he has a person by his side. But the first half of Hot Fuzz really follows almost beat for beat that kind of folk horror trope, especially that you see in Hammer films. Um, and that's part part of why I love Hot Fuzz is that I don't know how much that was intentional, but it kind of makes you want to watch like Point Break and Executive Decision and Lethal Weapon, and see if there are those kind of British folk horror elements in those films. Mm. Um, the idea of using uh, inner city urban space as this pseudo woods where mystical strange things happen where people can be seduced and changed and like corrupted um even sometimes without their permission i think there's something really great about this there's something really important in this film that happens during the romeo and juliet scene because people don't object to the romeo and juliet play but they wanted more traditional they didn't want the change of song at the end. And of course, the song at the end is cartoony. And obviously, it's that ongoing subplot about the inappropriateness of the director and the lead actress. Mm. But then we get the murder after that. We get the revenge for not staying normative. We get the revenge for doing something strange that puts everything in jeopardy for the people of the NWA. Um all the people that die really do put this idyllic, almost occult sensibility of conformity as a sort of God. Uh, the the idea of this perfect British town as its own sort of deity to be prayed to and have blood shed over to make sure things happen the mm. way it should. I really, I really love that because it's not something that I think about for cop films but it makes sense, especially for one where someone comes into a new location where they don't fit in. Um, mm. Because we don't see him in London, but there's a sense that he didn't fit in in London because Nicholas Angel was just better than the other people. Like, he wouldn't stop. He was yeah. going full RoboCop. And you never want to go full <laughs> RoboCop. Um, and th there's something mm. great about the idea of Nicholas Angel doesn't spend the film looking to fit in. But he ends up fitting in the end because the things that he does are actually much righteous, much more righteous than you think. And he does change to fit the scenario at the point where he thinks Danny has double-crossed them. And Danny is basically taking him out to, to, the, to the road stop. And he has mm. this choice where he can go back to London or he can come back and do the Western thing. There's something really great in that moment of how Nicholas has realized that he has the ability to change. And maybe there's still going to be law implementation that is a little hard-nosed. But it's also the idea of why did he join, you know, why did he want to do law and protection? You know, and it's not, it's it's also thankfully not cop glorification, which is something we have problems with here in America. Mm -hmm. Um but it's the idea of he allows himself to be moved and changed, but still doesn't change so much that we don't recognize him as the yeah. audience. Um, he really just does give in to his persona uh, rather than fighting <laughs> it. Um, and even inside of that very hyper-masculine persona, there is still this Japanese peace lily, this idea of being at peace, this idea of wanting to fit in but not having the language and this is where it starts to to not work with wicker man because the entire time in wicker man the police officer is trying to get people to see how wrong they are nicholas angel is just trying to make things work so it's not hmm. quite a one for one yeah. but i can see why people no. would go right to the wicker man headspace um 
Mm. There's just something That's... wonderful about the examination of the weirdness of the kind of British manor house system. And, and I say that as someone that loves the oddly end house English heritage videos, I absolutely adore them. But in the back of mind, I'm also thinking about the idea of that they're basically playing out British servitude and glamorizing, you know, upper class, lower class living. And it's something that is such a fascination for America that I can see why kind of Hot Fuzz and Vicar of Dibley are this fascination because we don't have villages like that here. We don't have, you know, the built in eons. We have like the Salem witch trials and we have like people going to Revolutionary War recreation towns, but those don't come with the same kind of haunted nature. They don't come with the yearning for idealism. Uh, they come, we, we have more of this like rugged Western viewpoint of things here in America, and it really screws everything up. It really just does. And it's this weird mythic heterosexualization of things that didn't exist. Um, as far as can be told, Western films especially don't really portray the reality of things, which was it was not quite as straight or quite as white as uh, or quite as male driven as we want to believe it all was. Um, which is something that I hope folk horror can eventually grapple with is also the idea of, of um, race and how that interplays in uh, folk horror. Anyways, yeah, so Hot Fuzz is secretly a horror film, um, and I kind of love it for that. Uh, I'm glad there's no physical representation of idyllic living, except for like the thing in the center of town that Timothy Dalton impales his head on. Um, but I, re I really like it as not just a buddy cop thing, but more to the point as the idea of this horror film with different layers about what this town is and how perfection is not an achievable goal because humans are not perfect. And perfection as an achievable goal ends, ends you with uh, the town in uh, Neil Gaiman's uh, good omens you know essentially where the antichrist is put it in a bubble to keep it the way it is because he's 12 and doesn't know <laughs> any better um so yeah i i think that's uh it's going to talk kind of talk about hot fuzz now kind of in that western era that you want to that you want to go to yes because a lot we've um touched upon um this a couple of times actually during the podcast uh briefly um and this is a good point to, to turn to that because we've sp spoken before about how Hot Fuzz is multifaceted. Um, we've spoken about it as a, a buddy cop thing, as um, a very quintessential British thing, um, as Brit as an allude to British folklore horror. Um, but to my mind, the the beat for beat plot points and the characterization of hot fuzz almost feels like it could be a neo-western or even a western uh story and you could have taken that and put it into a western film and it wouldn't feel at all out of place um you have a righteous person uh, so you have a righteous person sent by superiors to a out-of-the-way location out of jealousy because for some reason he's banished he's exiled arrives in the town um it's not lawless it's everything's going fine it's a dead-end job he starts to become friendly with locals starts to slowly fit in and such then he discovers the seedy underbelly secret of the town um is confronted with it faces the choice and his choice is to enact some real lawman's vengeance to get in there and take on the problem head on and proceeds to have a proper gunfight at the okay corral i mean sorry at the village center um rallies no, his it's totally a gunfight at the okay corral it's actually <laughs> so here's an interesting it actually fits in well with high noon which is the first Hollywood um, Hollywood cowboy film that has all the tropes in it, uh, which, by the way, High Noon was filmed without editing. It was filmed in one long sequence, by the way. 
It happens in real time. It's amazing. Um, it, it's almost that subversion of one standing against one villain. It kind of feels like one plus deputy standing against the whole rest of the town in a way, which I think is a great subversion of the of the Western trope as well. It just feels to me like it could have just been a, a Westerner film, but ended up the yeah as hot fuzz. Sorry, I lost my train of thought there. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, a Western film is really apt because, except for the fact that it's a green, lush village, it has all the hallmarks of people in their separate little bubbles going about their workaday lives. Except for scenes at the pub, which is a very saloon-oriented building, really people are kind of stuck indoors or moving to another space it does feel very frontier in a way it does feel isolated and that's on purpose and that's not just because of nicholas angel um mm. the idea of british culture being these separate isolated towns that are all striving for this one goal is also a little bit of a western motif because in western films um both old and neo all these towns are really separated and you have to take some sort of conveyance to get there. You can't just walk town to town. There's also an incredible amount in Western films of othering, of taking either a Native American voice and making it silly, um, in like a musical like Calamity Jane, taking the idea of a female heroine and kind of glorifying Doris Day as a sort of Annie Oakley type character. So there's this really great sense of othering and of isolation and neo community that works uh one film i would like to suggest that would work well with hot fuzz as a double feature is 2011's priest uh with carl urban paul bettany and cam gigadent and this is like a vampire western i don't know if you've ever seen it this movie is wild i think it's based on a comic book and uh paul bettany plays a priest and basically everybody else are like vampire cowboys and he has to murder them throughout the film if i remember correctly um there's a train car fight scene between carl urban and paul bettany that is iconic and incredible uh so there's a great neo-western tradition you could definitely pair hot fuzz with and it would not be out of place especially with something like priest so mm. yes so <sighs> It's all very, it's all obviously very deliberate. All of the, these different takes on it, these different narratives, almost as if they've taken a massive cooking pot and brought all of these different themes and genres together and created this one glorious thing, which is hot fuzz. Mm 